Let's begin by reading our questions and answers together. Today we have three questions and answers. They're all intimately related, so we thought let's do them all together. So <clears throat> we're going to read the question and the law, excuse me, the question and the answer together. So can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? Since the fall, no mere human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly, but consistently breaks it in thought, word, and deed. Question 14. Did God create us unable to keep his law? No. But because of the disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, all of creation is fallen. We are all born in sin and guilt, corrupt in our nature and unable to keep God's law. And question 15. Since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? that we may know the holy nature and will of God and the sinful nature and disobedience of our hearts and thus our need of a savior. The law also teaches and exhorts us to live a life worthy of our savior. Let's pray. Our Father, may the meditations of all of our hearts, may the words of my mouth in particular be pleasing in your sight. May you bring life where there is death, healing where there is brokenness. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, okay, there is so much to say here, so we're going to jump right in. Put your seatbelts on. We got to get to work immediately. So we've just completed our tour through the Ten Commandments. It's taken a long time, but finally we're here. Now, Every other law in the scripture receives its moral potency and alignment from the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are like the beating heart of all biblical law. It sends its power out and its uh, either condemning power or life-giving power, of which life-giving power is exceedingly minimal, only applies to one person. We'll get to that later. But it sends it out through the arteries to all other laws. And so here in the Ten Commandments, we get the, the center of all God's law. And I hope that we've done a good enough job preaching these that you understand that even though the law was back then and now Christ is here and and we are a, a new people formed in Christ, that it still has binding power on us in some sense. It's not as though lying was not okay before Jesus came, and now it's like, hey, go crazy. It wasn't as though adultery was not okay before Jesus came, and now it's like, well, sure, it's permissible. It's still binding on us because it is who God is is. So, even in general, even if we understand that, I would say, at least from my own experience and knowing lots of Christians, even though we know that, our relationship with the law is still a little confusing. We don't know exactly how to relate to it. So my task this morning, over the next few minutes, is to make as clear as I can what we as Christians are to do with the law. Now, notice the logic of the three questions that we just read. First, it says, can anyone keep the law of God? Answer, basically, no. Uh, Thought, word, and deed, everybody breaks it. That's about as comprehensive, comprehensive as you can get. Then the second one is, did God create us? unable to keep that law? Did he just put us at a handicap from the beginning? And the answer was, well, no. There, there was exactly two people who were able to keep the law. Their names were Adam and Eve. But then a great disease came into the, sin, uh, into, um, 
the human race called sin, and therefore we are now unable to keep it um, even fully, at least even in Christ. So then the third question is, okay, so we can't keep it. Why is it still here? What does it do for us, and what does it expect of us? How are we to relate to the law? And that's the question we want to try to figure out today. So um, the third question essentially gives us three uses of the law for Christians. Three uses of the law for Christians. The first one is that we might discern the holy nature of God. That we might discern the holy nature of God. That's the first use of the law. So the first thing we need to do when we come, say, to the Ten Commandments is not see it as a list of demands or commands, although they certainly are that, but to see it as the revelation of God's character. God is the one who does not lie. God is the one who always remains faithful to his adulterous wife. God is the one who never covets. This is a a revelation of who God is. So first use of the law, it describes God's character. Second use of the law is that it remains as a stumbling block to people who would want to justify themselves before God by trying to keep the law. So shows us who God is. And then it remains in our life so that we continually stumble over it to show us how sinful we are. Thought, word, and deed. And, to, I mean, to call, it a, actually, to call it a stumbling block is actually a little, um, a little tame. It's, when Paul wants to talk about this in Romans 7, he says, The law came in to kill me. So, so the law, maybe even more than a stumbling block, is like a, a blade that's there to pierce the gut of our pride and leave it bleeding all over the ground so that we might understand that we must have a savior. We cannot be justified by our works. Okay, now third use of the law, and this is where we're going to spend most of our time, is this. The law is there to show us how to live a life that is pleasing to God. Or, in the words of the answer, what kind of life is worthy of our Savior? Okay, so that's why the law remains. Now, in order to help us understand what that means, what it means that the law helps us to um, live a life pleasing to God, I'm going to walk us through, um, I'm kind of going to take us the long way around, um, but I'm going to do this. I'm going to walk us through the covenants that God makes with his people. Secondly, I'm going to ask which covenants do we inherit as Christians? And then thirdly, I'm going to try to make some applications. So first of all, what are the covenants? Second, what, second, what covenants belong to us? And then thirdly, how do we apply this? So if you go uh, to the Museum of the Ancient Orient in Turkey, you'll see a very interesting thing. It is, um, in fact, some of you may have seen this. It's a clay tablet written in the Akkadian language, and it is a treaty. It is a covenant. And that forms, that I'm going to show you here in a second, that that aligns with the way our biblical covenants act. But before we get there, I want to back up a little bit and say that in the Bible, covenant is a binding theme of all of Scripture. There's several themes that bind it, but if you pull anywhere in the Scripture where you see the word covenant, you pull that thread, you'll find that it It connects from beginning to end. So we're going to talk about God's covenants. Now, God in the beginning 
decided that he would never relate to any human being outside of a covenant. Now, I think that there was a covenant with Adam, but that's disputed, so we'll leave that, uh, we'll leave that there. We'll start in Genesis 5, because that's still pretty close to the beginning, in God's covenant with Noah. You'll remember, I don't have too much time to open this up for you, but you'll remember the story of Noah. It's not very far, narratively speaking, from the fall and the ejection from the garden. And, and God's assessment of, of humanity at that point is really bleak and grim. It says that he looked at humanity and said, the intention of their hearts is always for evil all the time. It was, it was pretty bad. And so you know what he does. He decides to judge humanity, wipe them all out with a flood, with the exception of one family, namely Noah and his family. And so there they are riding on top of the waters of judgment in an ark made of gopher wood, in case you were wondering. And after a while, they come back down the waters recede, and Noah comes out and makes a new civilization. And upon his leaving the ark, God says, I will never do that again. I will never judge and destroy uh, the world by water. And I make a covenant with every living creature that as long as there is seed time and harvest, sun and rain, that I will never destroy again. So, I'm, I know I'm talking fast, so let me try to z- zero in on this. God says, as long as the sun rises, as long as the sun sets, I will be in covenant with every living creature. Which tells me that what I said earlier was true, that God will relate to no one except through a covenant. If you draw breath in here, God is relating to you in a covenant, if, if you draw breath on this whole world, God relates to you through a covenant relationship. And if you want to know what pleases God, if you want to know how to relate to God, if you want to understand that, and if you're a Christian, you do, then I want to know what the covenant is. What does that mean? Because that's, if, if that's how God has decided to relate, then I want to know. So, um, back to the Museum of the Ancient Orient. So, uh, if you go into that museum, you see that tablet, And it's written in the Hittite language, Akkadian. And when the archaeologists dug this up, uh, they 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 began translating it. They began reading it, and uh, and then they found a similar tablet down in Egypt, written in hieroglyphics. And when they translated it, they their minds were blown because it was the exact same treaty: one written in Akkadian, one written in hieroglyphics. And what they realized was, this is it's called the Eternal Treaty, what they realized was is that this was a treaty made between two warring nations. A copy of it was deposited in the temples of the Hittites. Another copy of it was deposited in the temples of the Egyptians. And that was a pretty big find for them. But it was when the biblical scholars came in and started reading these that they, they grew weak in the knees. Their minds were absolutely blown. And here's why. Because they were well-versed in the covenant language of Scripture. They understood what a covenant was. And when they saw this Hittite treaty, they realized this is the exact same form as our biblical treaties. Okay. <laughs> Minds aren't blown yet. I'm, I'm going to keep going. Okay. Um, 
Okay, so here's what they found. Here's what they found. Um, that there was essentially, in the Hittite culture, two different kinds of treaties that they would use. I'm not making this up. You can go read about this. There's two different kinds of treaties that they used. The first kind was known as a suzerain-vassal treaty. The second kind of Hittite treaty was a royal grant. Now, we'll get to the royal grant uh, in, a little while, in a little while. So let's talk about the suzerain-vassal treaties first. Now, the words, first of all, are probably unfamiliar to you, but... Suzerain simply means a powerful king. This is the person who's in the position of power. Vassal would be like a client king, somebody who is in a weaker position. So let's say that we've got, um, I don't know, three tribes here in, in our sections here. And um, we're nomadic peoples. And you know th- this was when the Hittites were around. This was during the time when large civilizations started to arise, like Mesopotamia and Egypt. And one of the features of these large civilizations was uh, commensurately large armies, militaries. And so for people like us, we, we could fight with each other, but there's no way we c- could withstand the armies of, say, Ur or whatever. And, and so one thing that we might do is we could come together and make a federation of tribes, and let's just say I'm the king, um, and... Thank you. Um, and, and therefore, we could join our armies together and have a better showing. But here's the problem. Even with the Federation, we still stood no chance against these massive armies in the cities. So, therefore, what I could do is, as, as the king of this little federation of tribes, I could go to a stronger, uh, more powerful king, say, Emperor Miller... And I could, does that sound nice? You like that? All right. Um, And I could enter into an agreement with him and say, we will be your people. We will pay our tributes if you will offer your protection. And that's what a suzerain vassal treaty was. The, um, The lesser king coming under the protection of the more powerful king. Now, here's what you need to know about this kind of treaty. Is that in the suzerain vassal treaty, the suzerain, the powerful king, made no oaths whatsoever. The vassal took full responsibility to keep the conditions of the treaty. Now, that's going to be important here in a minute. But um, so here's here's where um, here's where the biblical scholars were really blown away is because they began reading these suzerain vassal treaties and they realized that as they found dozens of them, they basically had five elements to them. The first element of all suzerain vassal treaties is the preamble. And in the preamble, the parties that are coming together are named. The second element was the historical prologue. The historical prologue was a narrative told as to how these two parties came together and entered into this relationship. And these stories were told in such a way that it was very, very clear that the vassal had no bargaining power over the suzerain. The suzerain was in power, the vassal was not. The full weight of this covenant fell on the lesser king. The third element were the stipulations. The stipulations were essentially the rules of the covenant. These are the things you must do. These are the things you must not do. The fourth element were the sanctions. And this was the blessings that you would incur for keeping 
the covenant. There, there are curses that you would incur for breaking the stipulations of the covenant. And then finally, there were various instructions about uh, depositing copies of each tablet of the covenant into the respective holy places uh, of the peoples and um, provisions for periodic public reading of these documents. Now, um, let's compare this structure to Exodus 20. Now, Exodus 20, if you'll remember, is where we've been camping out for quite some time, and it is here that God gives his people the Ten Commandments. Listen to how this goes. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God. Preamble. The naming of the parties. And by the way, in Exodus 19, it talks all about, I am your God, you are my people. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Historical prologue. The story about how these two people came together, told in such a way that the the lesser party has no bargaining power. By the way, you were slaves in Egypt, and I brought you out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. You are not in a position to bargain. Then, the stipulations, the rules of the covenant. And what do you have next? Well, you have Ten Commandments. Then there's the sanctions, the blessings for keeping, the curses for um, not keeping. We begin, I can't read them all, but you you get the very beginning of them in the second commandment uh, about carved carved images. Um, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God. I, I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And then finally, if you go to Exodus 25, you see that um, you have instructions for depositing the tablets. Where? You know where. You, only, you don't even have to know the Bible. You just have to have watched Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? It's, it's in the Ark of the Covenant, okay? So in the holy place, and then, um, and then instructions for periodic public reading of the covenant to remind the vassals of their commitments. Now, um, if we had time, and we don't, I would show you how the book of Deuteronomy is essentially these five things that I just showed you, just longer. It's The whole book is composed according to this form. And unfortunately, we don't have time to do that, but I hope in Exodus you see it. Now, um, all this is to say... And here's the heart of it. So if you've tuned out on Hittite treaties, come here, come here. Um, This is the heart of it. The suzerain-vassal treaty is, at its heart, conditional. It is a conditional treaty. This kind of treaty says, do this and you will live, do it not and you shall die. Do this and you will live, do it not and you shall die. And I'll spare you the long story of how God's people violated this covenant over and over and over again. And if you look at Deuteronomy 27 through 28, you'll see a a comprehensive list of the curses for breaking the law, the blessings for keeping the law, and essentially the prophetic literature is just the prophets going back to Deuteronomy 27 and 28 and saying, here's all the curses that will come upon you. And it took 700 years, five to 700 years, depending on the northern and southern kingdom, to finally eject them from their land. Because the, su- the vassal had broken the covenant so often that finally the, the suzerain, did I say vassal? Vassal broke, uh, the suzerain removed his protection and the Babylonians and the Assyrians came rushing in. It's conditional. 
Do this and you will live. Do it not and you shall die. So that's the suzerain vassal. But there's a different kind of Hittite treaty. And that is known as the royal grant. If the suzerain vassal treaty is conditional, then the royal grant treaty is unconditional. The royal grant, and I could, read, I could read you examples of these from different kings bestowing gifts upon their client states, um, but that wouldn't be very interesting. You can go read them on your own. Um, but they do exist. And one thing, the, the thing that's um, at the heart of the royal grant treaty is that it is the king, the powerful one, putting his kindness and generosity, and prodigality, and effusiveness on display so that everyone could see. And there were no stipulations in this kind of treaty. Nothing to do, nothing to avoid. It it was just the king saying, I give this to you. And that's it. And now what's interesting to me is that every other covenant in the Bible follows this form. Every other covenant in the Bible follows the form of a royal grant. God's covenant with Abraham, God's covenant with David, and the new covenant. Now, I want to look at those all very quickly. Um, God's covenant, first of all, with Abraham. Now, you'll remember that in uh, Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham and he says this. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country. Now, listen. Listen to the language here. Go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, this is God in the form of a royal grant saying, Abraham, I will bless you. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will bless. And then, by the way, through you, all the nations will be blessed. And I will do this because I am that kind of God. I am generous. I am extravagant. And I want to bless all nations. And by the way, whether you, Abraham, are faithful or whether you are faithless, I will bless you. Whether you are faithful, whether you are faithless, I will bless you. And you'll recall just a few chapters later that Abraham is really, um, he believes God. He believes him. He does. But he's, he's confused. Because part of the promise is that God would give him a son. And the problem is, is that he has no son yet. Years after the promise. So God says to him, uh, Abraham says to God, how, how can I know that you will keep your promise? How can I know that you will do this for me? And so God says, I'll show you. And so he says, Abraham, cut up several animals. And so he cut up several animals and he separated them and, and he made a bloody aisle through which to walk. And now, anybody who was reading this in the old days when this was written, they would have known exactly what was about to happen. Because this is how people signed their name on the covenant line. Okay, whenever people would enter into um, relationships with each other, this is what they would do. They would cut up the animals, and then together they would walk through the animals. It was a symbolic way of saying this, that together we walk through these. It was to say, if I break 
my promise here. May I be cut to pieces like these animals. And then the other person would say, if, if I break my promise here, may I be cut to pieces. Now, what's amazing here is that everyone who's reading this back at, I mean, imagine, you were the first one to ever read this. Like, and you know the covenant culture. You understand what it means. You know what's about to happen. God and Abraham are going to walk through this covenant together because God is entering into this treaty with Abraham. But that's not what happens. He cuts the animals apart. He's got the bloody aisle. And then God puts him into a deep sleep. And in that sleep, God gives him a vision of a smoking fire pot. And that smoking fire pot represents the presence of God. And it passes all by itself through the halves of the animal. Which is to say, Abraham, if I break my part of this promise, may I be cut to pieces. But also, Abraham... If you break your part of this promise, may I be cut to pieces. <laughs> okay, so he's taking the entire responsibility for the keeping of this covenant on himself. Abraham, whether you are faithful to me or whether you are faithless, I will bless you. And by the way, Abraham was not as faithful as we all might think. He takes matters into his own hands, even after this. And he, he takes, uh, one of his servants has a uh, child by her because he thought, well, God is not really working this out on a, a, a commendable timeline. And so, um, so we must get this going. And so he is not faithful, but that doesn't break the covenant. Whether he is faithful, whether he is faithless, God keeps his part of the bargain. Now, let me hasten on quickly to David, the covenant with David. Um, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is feeling a little guilty. He's established his kingdom, and he has, um, he's now living in a palace, it says, made out of cedar. He's doing well. But the problem is, he's starting to feel guilty that the Ark of the Covenant is living down the street in a tent... And so he says to the Lord, with, with gratitude and, and earnestness, Lord, I will build you a house, by which he means a temple. And God comes back to him and says, you know, I've always lived in a tent. You're not going to build me a house. Your hands are full of blood. I'm going to save that work for your son. But, David, I will build you a house. By which he means a dynasty. Um, and so he says, I will build you a house and you will never lack a man to sit upon the throne. And David, by the way, whether you are faithful to me or whether you are unfaithful, I will always bless you. I, I will keep my part of this covenant. And you know that David was exceedingly unfaithful. It's only a couple chapters later where the Bathsheba affair starts, where he, he tries to cover it up through murder. I mean, he is faithless to the Lord and God keeps his promise. Now, the next and final royal grant is the new covenant, and we read about that from Jeremiah 31. It's also in Ezekiel 36, but we'll look at it from Jeremiah 31. Behold, this is Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. Listen to the language here. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Notice. There are no stipulations for God's people to keep. In fact, he explicitly says, I will make a new covenant with you, not like the one I gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. God will put his law within his people. He will write it on their hearts. He will be their God. They will be his people, and he will walk with them, and and he will forgive their sins and remember their iniquities no more. And what will that cost? The beneficiaries of such an unfathomable gift? Nothing. It costs nothing. He's saying to his people, whether you are faithful to me or whether you are unfaithful to me, I will bless you. Because this kind of grant, this kind of covenant is there not to put the burden on the vassal, but to put the burden on the powerful one to come through. Okay, now, that's the covenants. So that leads me to ask two very important questions of all of this. Number one, is this a faithful handling of Scripture to divide the covenants into two species like this? Excuse me. And secondly, if it is a faithful handling of Scripture, then which one, as Christians do we stand to inherit? So is it faithful to divide them like this? And then secondly, is it, um, which ones do we inherit? Now, those are some great questions to ask. And wouldn't you know it, the Apostle Paul answers both of them in the space of about eight verses in the book of Galatians, uh, in chapter four of Galatians. And he says this in Galatians 4.21. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? And if you've never read Galatians, um, the situation here is that Paul has planted this church, this little fledgling church in Galatia. And at some period after he planted the church, some Jews came along and said, oh, you know, that's great that you guys are Christians. It's it's a very good thing. Um, But here's the problem. You have to become a Jew first before you become a Christian, I mean, after all, Jesus was a Jew. All the apostles were Jews. You have to become a Jew first um, in order to become a Christian. And they were listening to this going, huh, I I guess that makes sense. That that sounds like it makes sense. Um, And then Paul hears about this, and he fires off an incredibly angry letter. If you ever read it from front to back, you'll see he doesn't even bless them. Like in normally his letters, he says, oh, I I made the Lord bless you and such and such. He doesn't even do that. He's like, he's angry. He's getting in there and he's solving the problem. And here's what he says. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These two women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children from slavery. Okay, just to be clear, 
Which covenant came to us at Mount Sinai? It was Moses. So he's saying, this mother bears children for slavery. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, verse 25. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Well, who is the Jerusalem above? For it is written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Okay, wait, wait. He was just talking about Abraham. Who is the barren one who does not bear? It must be Sarah. It must be Sarah. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those who, has a hus- who have a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. You are children of promise. So Paul goes ahead and answers both questions for us in one little chapter. Is it, is it right to divide these according to two species? Yes, he does it. These are two mothers. They are different. One is for slavery. One is for the inheriting of the promises. And which do we stand to inherit? He says, Christians, you stand to inherit with Abraham, according to Abraham, which is to say... Why did we spend all this time talking about ancient Hittite treaties, the suzerain vassal, the royal grant? It was all to the end to get you people to understand and and for all of us to get it into our minds, hopefully once again, to realize that we do not inherit a conditional suzerain vassal treaty. Instead, we inherit the royal grant in which God has decided to put his goodness and kindness and glory on display for all the world by saving people such as us. And whether we are faithful or whether we are faithless, he will bless us. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that amazing? Okay, okay, but there's more, there's more. All right, Um, now, is this just wishful thinking or does the scripture bear this out even further? I think the scripture bears it out even further. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus shows up on the scene, the very first words that we have in the New Testament, it's a genealogy in Matthew's gospel. And when Matthew wants to introduce Jesus, he says, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, he passes right over Moses, not, not that he was of Moses' line anyway, but the point is, he introduces him as, those, as one who is in line to, to bring into um, full bear on his people the royal grant, son of David, son of Moses. And so, what are we to say about this? We're to say that he is, Jesus is, the greater Abraham. Jesus is the one through whom God intends to bless all nations, He is also the greater David. He is the one who is bringing the kingdom of God to bear upon this world. And, by the way, he's also the king who perpetually sits upon the throne of David. He is also the inaugurator of a new covenant. You'll remember that uh, at the end of his life, right before his crucifixion, he sat down at a table like this, and he... And he said to his disciples, here, eat this bread, this is my body, and, and this is this wine, this is the blood of the covenant poured out for you. And so he inaugurates the new covenant in which the Spirit of God will be poured out upon him. And it is a kingdom that he gives us by his own merit, uh, and that merit becomes our merit when we believe that he has done this for us. 
And so our inheritance comes to us as a royal grant. And if we miss this crucial truth, we will be falling and always falling into the most alluring of traps, namely that we relate to God under the conditions of a suzerain vassal treaty. We are perpetually going there. We always want, our flesh always wants to exist there. But just in case that's your temptation, we also have to see that Jesus is also the better Moses. I mean, that's the whole argument of the book of Hebrews. Go read that this afternoon and have fun. But, but it, we'll stick with the gospel of Matthew. Um, isn't it interesting that the scholars almost universally agree that Matthew is divided up into five distinct parts? Now, can you think of any other place in Scripture that has five dis- very important distinct parts? I, maybe the five books of Moses. Isn't it also interesting that in Go- Matthew's Gospel, he's always going up onto mountains and teaching? And, by the way, one of the times he goes up on those mountains, he gives a new law. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. He even comments on the law of Moses. He says, oh, you've heard it said that you, know, you, shall not be angry, or, uh, you shall not murder, but I say, you know, even if you're angry, I say, you've heard it that it was said, you shall not murder, but I say, even if you have lust in your heart. He is the new Moses as well. So if you are falling into the temptation to relate to God under the suzerain vassal treaty, you have to know he is also taking care of that. So, Jesus has kept that law in your place. Okay, so that's what we stand to inherit. Now, I've only got a couple minutes left, so I need to get to the application. Application number one. I heard this, um, I heard, read this somewhere. I can't remember where. I can't give credit where credit is due. If you ever find it, let me know. But here it is, application number one. The law is a friend to those who are justified apart from it. Now we're trying to figure out what is the Christian's relationship to the law. Here it is. The law is a friend to those who are justified apart from it. So if the law comes to kill us, then it's clear, isn't it, that the law is not the proper instrument for our justification. That cannot be true. If we keep the law perfectly... I mean, hear this. If we keep the law perfectly, we can be justified before God by the law. But because of the devastating disease that we've inherited, indwelling sin, uh, original sin, um, it's impossible, as as the answer said, it's impossible in thought, word, and deed, we violate these laws every moment. I mean, we would never get to the bottom of it if we were able to start digging. And so... Our hope is that there was one, one, who ever kept the law in thought, word, and deed. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he kept that law in our place and for our sakes. So in the person of Christ, justification through the law has been accomplished. And atonement, simultaneously, atonement for our transgressions of that same law has been effected. And that means that through the cross of Jesus Christ, we are reconciled with our old enemy, the law, no longer under its exacting demands for its justification. The law is a friend to those who are justified apart from it. Or, as Thomas Watson has it, though a Christian is not under the condemning power of the law, yet he is under its commanding power. 
Okay, that's the first. Application number two. Okay, so we're still under the commanding power of the law. But because of the grace found in the shed blood of our Lord, hear this. Because of Christ, God accepts less than he requires. Let that sink in for a second. God, because of the grace that is in Jesus Christ, accepts less than he requires. Though we aim to please our Lord and though we aim to obey his commands with all of our hearts, though we aim at the center of the target of obedience, yet we have this powerful tremor in our hands that will never allow us to hit the bullseye. And God knows this. And that reality for true Christians is a source of great sorrow. We want please the Lord. We long to. We long to walk in his ways. We grieve over our sin. We long to walk in the same ways that Jesus did, and yet we find that our obedience never really resembles the beatific vision of Jesus Christ. Well, here's the good news. Hebrews 4 tells us that our King Jesus Christ, our merciful high priest, sits on a throne. And what kind of throne is it? It says it is a throne of grace. Jesus Christ sits on a throne of grace. Combine that with Psalm 103, which says that God, as a good and merciful father, looks at us and he, remem- he, he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. Combine those two things, and here's what you have. Because the law has been fulfilled. None of it, none of it lacks. It, it is all fulfilled to its very top. And so, since the law is now our friend, and it teaches us how to live a life that pleases God, that means that whatever mangled and grotesque version of obedience we offer, so long as it is in faith... God accepts. He accepts less than he requires because of the finished work of Christ. Okay, I've got to finish. Now, Christians, listen to me. Let let us all rejoice that we've inherited a treasure so unimaginably extravagant and never let our failings under the law shove us back into the house of guilt and condemnation Offer to God what you are able in faith. Offer to him all that he is working in you, and you will find that when you look to his face, it is a face with a smiling countenance. But non-Christians, let me speak to you just for a moment, if any of you are in here. Outside of Christ, the only inheritance you have is the law. You relate to God. God still relates to you in the form of a covenant. He relates to all living creatures in, in the form of a covenant. But your inheritance is condemnation. Because you can't keep the law. And by the way, if you think that you can, then you're not yet ready for a savior. You need to try to follow the law a little bit more. And by the way, try harder, okay? Because that's going to get you quicker to the place where you realize that you can't do it. And so Jesus himself said that he came to save sinners. He said that the healthy have no need of a doctor. And so if something is becoming clear to you right now and you're beginning to feel that 
that deep sickness inside of you and you're beginning to long and cry out for a cure, then the good news is that the cure is very near to you today. He is awakening you now and bringing your healing to bear upon you now. Your forgiveness, your atonement, and your seat at the table of God. The only thing you must do is believe. You must believe that he has done it for you and then all of his goodness and kindness and generosity and prodigality in the blood and uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ will come pouring out upon you. He will make over the covenant to you. So why do you wait? Please believe. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, Amen. We... We have, to, we have to come to the table now. This table is, as I mentioned before, the table at which Jesus sat when he inaugurated the very covenant in which we all exist today, so long as we are believers in Christ. So, believers in Christ, come, taste the extravagance of God, understand what it feels like, and then you, if you're not a believer in here, believe now. And come to this table. Claim your inheritance. It belongs to you. He is, he is at work. What are you waiting for? Come. Let us pray. Our Father, here we are yet again at your table. And we come uh, full and burdened of sin, iniquities, uh, sins of thought, of heart, of mind, of deed, sins of omission, sins of commission. We don't even know the bottom of it. There is only one who does, and that is you. And in the body of Jesus Christ, he bore the condemnation for all. And so, as we come now, would you feed us? Would you grant us the faith to continue living the lives that you have given us to lead in the grace of in the kindness of Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. You are welcome.